two figures pick a careful path over a steppe grassland. Far to the south, the plains stretch out to the cold waters of the Mediterranean. To the north, a line of hills rises. Beyond the hills, where Paris and London will stand, glaciers bury the earth. Freezing wind draws in moist sea air and drops it as snow. Cold holds the water, stops its flow to the sea. Ice weighs on northern lands, and a dry plain rises like a seesaw. This cold plain is far from the sea. Small groups of humans live off the land, hunting in the cold wastes. Perhaps the two women we see are explorers crossing the wastes between the warmer lands in Spain and Italy. Maybe they are traders with bags of shell beads, or with humans scattered in small groups, this could be a matchmaking tour. Wherever they cross this brutal land, they have a more immediate need. Food. The younger woman looks to the ground, following her aunt's careful route through the steppe, as the long summer sun turns tundra into bog. Looking up now, scanning the horizon, she taps the woman's shoulder and whispers, Or rain. The deer is a straggler, separated from its herd. No watchful companion will spot the danger, calling its attention as it nibbles dry lichen from clinging, cold earth. It is seen only by the hunters, crouching now on the ground. The older hunter points, fingers outstretched, directing the younger woman's path. As her companion circles the animal, the crouching hunt leader raises her arm, fingers curled in. She waits as the younger woman flanks the deer, and then, as her companion sprints, shrieking at the frightened animal, uncurls her fingers and pauses. Two more hunters, our hunt leader's brother and her nephew, have been watching their leader's silent signals. Now, as the terrified animal hurtles towards them, they stand and roar, arms and stone head splitters waving. The animal has one path now, straight towards the crouching hunt leader. She notches a stone-tipped spear into her atlatl and, like a dog walker with a plastic ball launcher, propels it through the air, deep into the animal's skull. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive with Fugro below the waters of the Mediterranean and into the Cosca Caves, a submerged gallery of some of Europe's oldest artworks. Our hunters have made their way to a cave opening now, nestled in a valley and sheltered by the hill above. The men and the younger woman are dressing their catch, stripping flesh from bone, pulling tendons into twine, and hanging muscle to dry in cold air. The older woman's task will sustain them in a different way. She scrapes and struggles up through the tight, dark passage towards a hidden chamber. There, she unpacks her tools. A flint, a grease and moss torch, her all-purpose crushing and slicing tool, a chunk of colourful rock. She strikes the heavy tool on the flint. 
In the darkness, she crushes her thumb. She strikes again and a spark. Now she works a coloured rock, breaking it in chunks with the heel of her stone tool, crushing stone to powder with its curved body. In her hand, she works powder into paste and passes it to her mouth. Standing now, she places a hand on the wall, fingers curled, swills pigment around her mouth and spit sprays a stencil. As she waits for the paint to dry, the hunter surveys the other hand stencils left in the cave. Like her own, most of the hands that made these stencils appear to have been those of women. Many of the stencils, like hers, show only the palm and part of each finger. We cannot know much about this art or the lives of the people who made it. The stories of Ice Age life in this episode are works of imagination. But studies of the art in this cave and others in France and Spain give us some clues. A study by Dean Snow at Pennsylvania State University's Department of Anthropology, published in America Antiquity in 2013, measures whole hand stencils found in caves in the region. By comparing these with statistics taken from modern hand measurements, Snow was able to show these were most likely made by women. Perhaps our hunt leader was just more able than her broad-shouldered brother to access the cave. But maybe this place was set aside in some way for women. In the stencils of this cave, like many others, fingers are missing or shortened. Luke Van Rell has been studying this cave since the 1990s and leading the research for more than 10 years. We interviewed him in French with the help of Bertrand Chazali of Fougro, who has been working with him to map and recreate the cave for the public to view. Other researchers have studied hand stencils like these. Some guess that the stencils were made by people who had lost fingers to disease or accident. But there are so many stencils with fingers like this. It is hard to believe they were all made by amputees, who would have struggled to survive in the harsh ice age. Instead, Luke proposes that they are related to a form of sign language used in hunting trips, like that in the imagined story that's opened the episode. Uh, th th there would be maybe two ex explanations. First, it could be a way of identification, just something like a signature. Uh, but uh, another idea would be uh, that it, it could be a, a way of uh, some expressive communication. You really have to be aware that uh, during this period, uh, uh, so people were hunters and uh, they, they, they had to hunt uh, very, very carefully just to, to reach the animals that they were hunting very uh, closely, so to be sure the, to, to, to get these animals. So uh, during this hunting, the, these hunting, they, they probably had to communicate uh, silently. So it, these uh, negative ends, there, there are probably some sign language uh, used for communication. And the fact that uh, some fingers are missing in the, in, in the, 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 the paintings doesn't mean that the the, the, the fingers were really missing, but it's it probably a way to use your fingers as a communication tool. 
Let us return to the modern era. It is a late summer day in 1991, and Henri Koska is preparing for another dive, 40 metres below the surface of the Mediterranean. He had first spotted the opening to the cave in 1985 and then, little by little, explored the narrow 120-metre passage leading up from it. In 1992, Koska described his exploration of the cave in a paper written with Jean Clot and Jean Cortin. Cortin is a leading expert in cave art. Jean Clot was the initial leader of research on the cave and recruited Van Rel. Access to the cave is extremely dangerous. As divers swim their way through the passage, their flippers disturb the seabed. It darkens the water to the point that, even with powerful lamps, they cannot see their own hands. In the summer of 1991, three divers from Grenoble got lost in the darkened passages, panicked and then drowned. On his first dive to the main chamber, Koska will see something no one has seen since the rising waters of the Mediterranean drowned the cave entrance. Luke Van Rel joined the research team a little later, recruited by Klot in 1995. He helped conduct the dives that proved the authenticity of the art found in the cave. He took over from Klot in 2001. He told us about his own first encounter with the cave. Alors, la première visite dans la grotte. Uh s'est passé de façon euh, mystérieuse parce que le trajet euh, sous-marin et surtout le trajet souterrain the first visit to the cave feels mysterious because the underwater journey and especially the underground journey to access the main chamber is very long the sense of mystery only progresses along the way and when you arrive the cave's mineral structure is absolutely magnificent so the first shock is really an aesthetic response to the mineral beauty of the cave and then you are confronted with the almost physical presence of some of our earliest ancestors as koska and his fellow divers first explored the caves though they were not immediately aware of the art when they first saw markings on the walls they were not sure what they were seeing they returned with a camera, took photos, and began to share them with scientists like Clot and Cortin. The experts in parietal, or wall art, were hard to convince. Bertrand Chazalet explains. Some of the archaeologists were really uh, not sure it was really uh, prehistoric drawings. They thought maybe it was not uh, very serious. So uh, they really had to, to wait for the, the expertise of one of the uh, big uh, parietal specialists in France, who is Jean Courtin, who carefully looked uh, at the picture and said, no, no, that's, uh, that, that's true heart, actually. They were able to, to bring Jean Courtin into the cave so that he was able to look at the drawings and, and just said, okay, that, that's really, really parietal art. The next stage in the scientific examination of the cave was to confirm the date of the art. This is not easy. Even above the water, the cave is sloped and the floor wet. In other caves, like Chauvet, there were much larger works. Clot has dated these to an even earlier period, around 30,000 years ago. 
It tells us something about our use of art to compare Chauvet and Koska. In Chauvet, there are detailed and dramatic representations of animals, which predate the earliest hand stencils in Koska. The realistic portrayal of animals in Koska comes later than these stencils. Our ancestors did not start with stencils, like children making handprints, and then develop the skill to make figurative works. These were experienced artists, with thinking minds and deep cultures just like our own. At some times, in some places, they chose to make stencils, and at others they chose to draw animals. In Koska, the artworks are smaller, but wherever an artist could reach, there is art. To study and date it, the archaeologists have to be up close to the art. They really have to be uh, uh, physically in front of the drawings to, to look at these really small details that, the, that are used to confirm that this is Parisian art. Making the, 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 the archaeology uh, study in that condition is really, really difficult. By looking at how different works were superimposed on each other, they could see that our ancestors had first made hand stencils. Perhaps thousands of years later, others had made detailed depictions of animals. As soon as they had confirmed that the markings in the cave were ancient art, the scientists faced a new challenge. The Mediterranean has been rising ever since the end of the Ice Age. Even in the early 1990s, they could tell that much of the art that had filled the cave had been lost. And now climate change is speeding the water's rise. The art is being drowned at a rate of three millimetres a year. Maybe four-fifths of it has already been lost. Just to continue their studies, the archaeologists would need to map the caves. In the very, very first years, for example, they tried to, uh, to draw an accurate map of the cave, but, but because of the water and because of the, this really difficult ge geomorphology, they were not uh, even able to draw an accurate map. At the end of the, 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 the year 2000, uh, the French ministry uh, started to thought about maybe asking for a 3D record, very accurate 3D record of the cave, of its morphology and uh, of of the, 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 the drawings and grabbing, so that maybe this 3D data set could ease the study of, of the cave. And uh, that's when they started to, to find someone who could, who could do this, uh, this survey and, uh, and they called me. We return to the landscape of the cave. It is hundreds perhaps thousands of years after our hunter and her group crossed the frozen wastes. The warming seas of the Mediterranean teem with life. Seals and fish, penguins and orcs fill the sea and shore. The cave entrance is still many miles from the sea. A group of hunters carry their catch to a gathering around the cave entrance. Today they have butchered the carcass of a Megalaceros elk and the giant antlers that give it its name. On other hunts, they have brought back the meat of deer and horses, sager and bison. The grasslands between shore and cave are full of life. The gull we have followed down from the distant sea swoops down. It takes a scrap of discarded food from beside a dying fire. The adolescents feasting here have made their way to the cave entrance and are now scrambling through darkness to the main cavern. Here, 
over days and nights of intense spiritual exertion, they'll be shown the hidden meaning of stories they have learned from childhood. In doing so, they will become adults. A shaman is completing a drawing of an elk, tracing its outline in black on the red walls of the cave. As the youngsters arrive, they light their seal-fat torches from the shaman's fire. The sputtering grease flames bring the animals to life, their flanks ripping as if in a stampede. A chant begins, the shaman summoning a growl from deep in his chest and whistling over the groaning roar. Bone rhythmically strikes antler and a three-hold flute plays a melody. The physical artefacts and drawings we find in the cave cannot tell us much with certainty about the beliefs of these people. However, Jean Clotz, Luc Van Rael's predecessor as scientific lead at Koska, has used an understanding of shamanistic practices alive today to build a theory of how the cave was used. To learn more about the flood-threatened cave, the scientists would need more accurate mapping. Working in the damp darkness, they had not been able to record the cave using traditional tools. Bertrand Chazelet has developed techniques to combine dense 3D scans with photogrammetry. A pioneer of these tools in France, he has worked with UNESCO in Egypt. The tools he uses can also be used in industry to map mines, for example. He had experience as a leisure diver, but had never dived in such dangerous conditions as those at Koska. When the French Ministry of Culture came looking for an expert to map the caves, he first had to develop his diving skills, and then he had to develop a plan to map the caves. They really wanted someone, a company, to uh, get the most accurate 3D model of the cave, uh, saying that they, they really needed three levels of details. So first level was to get the general volumetry of the cave uh, and the surfaces located uh, above and below water. Then the second level of detail was to get a detailed 3D point cloud where we uh, the, the, the engraved and painted surfaces could be uh, located. Uh, to, to geo-reference these uh, graphical entities. And then they asked for a last level of detail, which was the, the finest uh, 3D modeling uh, of the graphical entities as possible, at a level of details uh, that uh, could allow uh, a complete and deep study of the, the, the engraving on, on the computer. So these three steps were quite clear, but what was not clear is the way we could deliver these three steps. We really had to think about uh, uh, how to do it. And, uh, and we, the answer was to mix, uh, I would say, different uh, technologies. The first one is 3D scanning. So you use a 3D scanner, which is a, a tool that you put on the tripod, and uh, it's really scanning all the surfaces in a, uh, in a 360 degree uh, field of view with a density and uh, an accuracy of about two, two millimeters, which means that the instrument is uh, measuring 3D points, one point every two millimeters everywhere. The problem is that uh, if you have a wall, if you have something in front of the scanner, uh, everything that is behind this wall, you can't see it. So you have to um, record several scan positions so that by the end, when you mix these different scan positions, 
you are you have been able to to cover all the the, the walls that you you have in the cave and that was one of the challenge uh, which i mean to 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 record enough scan position uh, to to provide a, a 3d model a first 3d model that that was uh, uh, that that could cover all the surface of the cave Bertrand's 3D scans could deliver the first two of the scientists' requirements. They showed the shape of the cave and the textures of the surface, but they were still not detailed enough to allow Klopp and Vandrell's team to study the art properly. So to reach this uh, last uh, level of detail, we changed to, to another technology, which is photogrammetry. And what is photogrammetry? Photogrammetry is... Uh, to take uh, an object, uh, to take pictures of an object from different point of view with a stable coverage between your pictures. And then um, a software uh, is able to um, uh, recognize uh, in, into different uh, pictures the same points that, are, that have been uh, uh, photographed and to reconstruct the the 3D shape of the object that has been uh, that has been photographed. So, uh, if you use a very uh, high resolution camera, and if you take pictures very close to the object, then you are able to uh, provide a 3D model that is very very uh, dense and very accurate. And uh, uh, into the Cosker cave, we have uh, taken uh, pictures at less than one meter distance from the, uh, the surface so that the final resolution of the picture were, uh, was more than 0 0.1 millimeter which means that all the the engraved and painted surface of the cave uh, the cave uh, have been uh, photographed uh, with more than one pixel every 0 0.1 millimeter at the surface of the cave so it's a very huge set of um, uh, pictures, several uh, terabyte of uh, of pictures, but then by computing these pictures, we were able to reconstruct the surface at a resolution where we can see all the very thin uh, uh, engravings and things like that. The detailed 3D scan that Bertrand constructed opens new ways of working for Luke and the wider scientific community. It descends dans l'inframillimétrique. Getting down into the millimetric grid with Bertrand has been an exciting project. It was really something great, both in terms of the technical and scientific adventure and the human adventure as well. At the same time, we've been able to use precise and exact measurements in the laboratory, which would have been very difficult in the cave. We cannot easily perform close inspection in the cave. It is very difficult. It's much simpler to use 3D as a tool. The job now is to contextualize what we see in the laboratory, which was possible thanks to the quality of the 3D results. And then, of course, there is the possibility of collaboration, of sharing detail with other scientists thanks to the 3D model, which would not be possible with a simple film. The scans of the cave have allowed Luke and his team to study the cave in previously impossible precision. It has allowed them to share its hidden secrets with scientists around the world. But it has also allowed them to bring an experience of the cave to the wider public. 
To do this, the local council, Region Sud, recruited Alain Dali, an artist who has recreated cave art from across France. Growing up in Lascaux, one of the first sites where prehistoric wall art was discovered, it's work he was born to do. Alain is, is, a, is a native from the, the village of Lascaux. Uh, so it's something almost, almost natural to 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 be involved in 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 this. And he, his parents knew the discoverers of the of the cave, and uh, he also worked as a guide in, in the cave. And uh, and in parallel, he started his studies in uh, well, school art. Uh, so it was something natural. Alan had put his skills as an artist to use to recreate the caves at Lascaux and Koska. But with the precise 3D scans developed by Bertrand and Luc, he was able to do so with far more precision in Marseille. The villa in which these works are shown opened this summer. For each cave, I've used different artistic techniques as the methods of measurement evolved. I had to adapt to the evolution of new scientific tools. With the use of 3D scans, I was able to develop new digital ways of working using a five-axis milling machine to recreate the cave walls. Computer-aided milling machines like this are used in industry to cut complex components from steel or to prototype elements that will later be cast or moulded. Here, Alan uses them to precisely etch the surface of panels, which will represent the rock walls of the cave. Elaine's task was not to build an exact replica of the caves, sloping and slippery floors and narrow passages included. Instead, he seeks to give visitors a safe but rewarding experience of what it's like to see this ancient art. Translating for Alan, Bertrand explains the details that could be delivered just by the milling machine. With Cosquier, they, 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 they had some... Uh, some choose uh, uh, 3D files with extreme precision, so to the to a point uh, that when they milled the the the, 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 the 3D surfaces, the even the fin engraving uh, appeared directly during the, the milling. So uh, it really helps the the, the, the construction. So uh, even if the, 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 the 3D surface is very accurate, it's not enough uh, because uh, they, they, they are also looking for the, 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 to render the same feeling uh, 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 concerning the colorimetry and, and, and the grain size of the, of the surface. So what they did is uh, to use also the, 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 the imagery that, we, that Figure provide and they project the images on the surface uh, thanks to uh, the 3D projection so that they were able to, to uh, reproduce the grain and of the, of, of the color. This stage of the work involves another journey back in time. Elaine and his team use the same tools and pigments that were used to create the original artwork. Using charcoal and flint, they replicate the methods used to make the drawings and engravings. They might not be able to understand the meaning these works had, but they can experience some of the physical sensations the ancient artists would have felt. Around the world, our shared culture is endangered. Plunder and iconoclasm, our use of the land and impact on the climate all put historic sites at risk. Unfortunately, rising sea levels will claim the cave and its art treasures. While he does not want to claim his work as an act of preservation, Elaine can help share the experience of visiting them with the public. 
Bertrand sums up Elaine's thoughts on the scope of these tools. The technology of the facsimile is very useful and it's not only uh, uh, useful for decorated prehistoric cave. It can be also applied to other, other subjects, historic subjects, uh, which are not only prehistory. It can be, it can be used for other places, uh, uh, for example, for more contemporary uh, history related to places that are endangered and, and the fact that you can replicate these uh, very accurately, these places is a way to, uh, to ensure the transmission. Alors, l'intérêt de reproduire la grotte euh, de façon euh, totalement accessible... I've thought for a long time that reproducing the art of the cave is an important part of sharing scientific knowledge with the public. The Koska cave, with its cold waters, is such a difficult place to get to. It has taken the discipline of some serious explorers like Bertrand and the spirit of human adventure to recreate the caves in 3D. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North, edited and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own prehistoric work of art is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.